Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Episode 5, Chapters 20-22. through 22. Chapter 20, Caramel Rolls At the time, there was a big controversy over the death penalty, um, and a lot of people, they believed strongly that they these kids should have gotten the death penalty, um, and we, we thought they should get life in prison. This is Kim Mammel, Ellen Zick's granddaughter. She lives in Texas today, but as a kid, Kim spent part of most every summer with her grandma Ellen and with Wade in Zeeland, North Dakota. Grandma was so much fun. She was wonderful to be around. She she would just let me be a kid, and she would kind of be a kid with me. You know, we played games together. We played candy. She'd play Candyland with me. And when it would get hot, you know, we just use our imaginations. Pretend, pretend the bathtub's a pool, and that's what we did. And she'd get in her swimsuit, and I'd get in my swimsuit, and um, we just splash around for a little bit. This is probably a tough question, but if you were able to say something to your grandmother, Ellen, today, what would it be, or, or what would you say to her? Mm, gosh. First of all, how, how much I miss her. I just had such a deep love for her. I would want her to know just how deeply she was loved. My dad especially was close to her, and... um and thank her for giving us the the qualities that that she had for the laughter and the joy that she brought and then I wish she was here you know I wish she was here but I know that her soul were connected you know we're all connected and um I would also say that sickens me when I think about what she went through, um, when I think about the fear that she must have been in because she was such a gentle person, she didn't deserve that and neither did Wade. Um, it, that's, I tell you what, the fear, when I, I think about the terror that they had to have been feeling, um, it's making me shake right now <laughs> um, because I, I would never wish that on, on them or a- anyone for that matter. But um, when, when you think of someone that you love so deeply um, going through that kind of terror, um, yeah, it just makes me very, very sad. Thank you.
You're listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 2, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Zick, their lives and their tragic murders in 1976. My name is James Wolner. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. If you know anything about Zealand, there's probably not too much to do there. But as a kid, it was just adventure land for me. And Grandma was so much fun. And gosh, you know, I just remember her baking. I can still, and for years I would say this, I can still smell the caramel rolls that she would bake. You know, when they just come out of the oven. And I don't think I've ever had, for... I just gave up trying to find caramel rolls. They don't have them in Texas because she put extra caramel on there. And boy, we, especially when they're fresh out of the oven, um, just put a whole lot of butter on those and let it melt. Oh my gosh, they were the best. I think my parents felt kind of sorry for me. My two older brothers always kept me, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. So they let me take my best friend, Lisa, um, to Zealand. And boy, we went to that five and dime store and just bought tons of bazooka, the, the penny bazookas. And I remember the brown paper bag we had, and we just sat on, sat on our beds reading the little cartoons. We had so much fun. We had some fun times. You know what? I remember them having the best hamburgers I've ever had. And my best friend, Lisa, that joined me that one summer, she'll tell you the same thing. She still remembers them. We went three times to the little hamburger joint in downtown Zealand. And those hamburgers, I don't know what was about, but they were the best. <laughs> I still remember them being the best. She helped us kids a lot when we were young. Um, when dad was traveling and he was in the entertainment business and grandma Zick was always there for us. And um, I'm just grateful beyond measure that she was my grandmother. And I'm deeply saddened that I didn't have more time with her. I asked him what her grandmother's personality was like. Who was she? Well, I just remember the way she said, oh, for Pete's sake. Oh, for Pete's sake. (laughs) She was a little bit aloof and silly, but in a sophisticated way, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, She was just endearing, really endearing and warm um, and loving. They were very devoted to the church and to helping others. Kim went to Zealand most every summer. The only reason she was not there the night her grandparents were killed was because of last-minute changes to their plans that summer. We were supposed to be there, I was anyway, 
supposed to be there because I always went for summer vacations um, to Zealand. But my trip had gotten canceled because we found out we were moving to Texas. I always felt like if I if I would have been there, that somehow the circumstances would have been different. Like maybe these three guys, they would have seen me in the window and thought, oh, there's a kid there. We don't want to go to that house. Or um, if they did come in, I could put my Superman cape on and um, save the day. And it would have never happened. Um, so, yeah, which is a lot for a kid to deal with and carry around for a long time. When Kim and her parents and brothers were in Zealand for the funeral, they stayed in the same house as the Walds, just across the street from Zion Lutheran. Like Mike Wald, who was nine years old at the time, she remembers those days clearly. After the funeral, she recalls a group of parents and grown-ups sitting up late one night, sharing memories of Wade and Ellen, and looking for ways to deal with the reality of what had happened. I remember them drinking beer, and my I would hear my dad laughing, and he said, um, oh, I found the remedy. I know what will work. It's drinking beer and laughter. That's what we need. And I just remember him saying that. It was just kind of an odd thing to remember. People don't realize, I don't think, and people will say it all the time, we never thought it could happen to us. I like it always happens to people on TV. Like it just doesn't happen to people like us, but we're those people and how it changes. I mean, it changed the whole dynamic of our family. Um, my parents were so strict because my dad was just so mad and it was just, it's, that's how, you know, people get mad and it's really fear. Um, he just did not want anything to happen to any of us. I do, I do remember my dad and I, we took a walk outside and um, we just walked up and down the street and we were holding hands and he just would tell me about how much he loved her and um, that, you know, we're going to get through this and um, that she loved me a lot and just kind of stuff like that. Yeah, it was really sweet. It was very sweet. In part one of this podcast, we traveled through the first five days of this crime in Zealand, starting from the intense search with the Zicks, the subsequent discovery of their bodies, all the way until the capture of the three fugitives at the Canadian border. And along the way, we learned a little bit about Wade Nell and Zick. Now, in part two, we're going to be doing some seeking and some exploring. We will learn more about Wade and Ellen, but we will also take a closer look at the three men who carried out this crime. So far, we've followed along as David and Butch Feist and their accomplice Greg fled North Dakota. We've buzzed around them like a bee watching from a distance. In part two, we're going to take a closer look at all three of them. We will hear from people who grew up in Zealand and who remember not only the Zix, but also the three men. And we are also going to be hearing from at least one of these convicted criminals himself. I reached out to all three of the convicted because 
I wanted to understand a couple things. One was, why? Could they shed any light on why the Zix had to be killed? The other thing I was seeking is a little harder to explain. We all know that story of the mountain climber when asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. Answers, because it's there. Well, I did have a mountain to climb. I reached out to the Feist brothers and Gregory Huber with the hopes of getting an answer to what was said that night. What did Wade and Ellen say? Because, as heartbreaking as it is to think about, I can't help but believe that even as they were being taken to the bank, they must have thought that everything was going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We give them the money and then it's going to be okay. If they sensed in the end that things were not going to turn out okay, what was said, if anything? Did Wade and Ellen pray? Did they plead? Did they call out for their children or tell each other, I love you or goodbye? That's the mountain I wanted to climb. Yet, if you were to ask me why, the answer is not because it's there. The answer is because right now, the only people who know what Wade and Ellen's last words were are the three men who killed them. And that knowledge does not belong to them. At least, it shouldn't. That knowledge belongs to other people, namely Nancy Wald's family and Jerry Mammel's family. If I learned anything on this journey, it is that Wade and Ellen's loved ones are not quite finished mourning and processing this sad event, all these 45 years and several generations later. I guess that's why I wanted to climb this mountain, to hopefully locate and retrieve a few misplaced belongings and return them to their rightful owners. I didn't know if it was possible, but for some reason I felt I just had to try. Chapter 21. Say Something. The route guidance will start now. Setting Zealand as your destination. In 2019, I traveled to Zealand a few times to gather the recollections and memories of the Zix and of the three men who killed them. Dean Schumacher was about 14 years old in 1976. He remembers the Zicks, the Feiss, and the Hubers. I met him at his welding and repair company on Main Street in Zealand. The Zicks were such nice people. I remember them from first grade, and I remember every... I can't remember what day it was, but in the, princi- in the elementary principal's office, you know, they would come in once a week, and they would be... Uh, like selling uh, savings bonds, okay. and you would take your whatever it was, twenty-five cents, a dollar of your piggy bank money, and you would give it to them, and they would chart it almost like coupons. You know, you almost got like a like a I remember gold bond stamps or something yeah. like that. You got these stamps, and I think once you had like twelve or thirteen dollars worth of money, um, 
the the certificate was filled and then when you become i don't know 18 or in so many years it was worth 25 dollars. you had 25 dollar gift certificate and i i don't know i real vividly remember them coming in every week and i got 50 cents today (laughs) here i got a quarter today bad in you know and him and her were always there and they were just super friendly super nice dean also remembers greg huber and the feist brothers like I say, I was a freshman, and um, Gregory Huber was a senior, and uh, we had study hall classes together, you know, small school, so we even had some classes where freshmen and seniors sure. had same social studies or whatever class. And, uh, um, and I remember this Butch Feist coming and I can't remember if he come at the beginning of the school year or if the school year had started already but um he was there and he was uh he kind of stood out you know I mean it was the 70s so the hair well everybody had longer hair mm-hmm. but he had like shoulder length hair it's you know a big that. blonde straight shaggy dog type looking hairdo which was a little a little unusual for a rural area you know but he was quiet you know he was very I mean he wasn't wasn't a troublemaker um he wasn't real outgoing and mouthy or cocky or he was fine I I remember him coming in the study hall and he always had a book you know a paperback book and he would read his book during study hall and um it didn't take long you know and gregory was a fine i mean he was a very quiet person you know um he wasn't like he was a troublemaker outlaw or anything like that he was very quiet i mean he wasn't the town uh, class clown or anything like nothing. that nothing just normal you hmm. know <clears throat> and it didn't take long and them two were best buddies they went everywhere together and Rarely Zealand. They would always go to uh, Glenham, South Dakota. Tiny, tiny little town just before Mobreach. And they did a lot of partying and stuff. Because you could drink down there, right? Yeah, yeah. It was 18 at that time. You know, the drinking age in South Dakota for 3-2 beer. And they were always going, every weekend, they were going to either Glenham or Mobreach. And they would come back and kind of brag how they partied and got drunk last night in Glenham and and uh and of course weed we you know they there was a lot of weed involved in that time i don't know if it was any more than weed but they were pot smokers you know you you know who did it back then you know who did it and who didn't do it you know but um yeah there was as far as i can remember as far as i can tell there was no trouble in school and i got along with them you know they weren't like bullies or anything got along gregory great of course I knew his brothers and sisters too, and we're to this day still pretty close with several of his brothers and sisters. But so they weren't making any trouble, and then David Feist comes to town. Yep, and it was, that was all over. The general consensus in Zealand is that the real trouble started when, sometime in the spring of '76, Butch's brother David arrived. It was all over, like the like flicking a light switch. But he showed up like in the spring. And of course, he was like 2021, 20, um, had long dark hair. I mean, and very mouthy, cocky, arrogant. And, and 
almost instantly, Butch and Gregory changed. They weren't sociable no more, and, and uh, especially Butch got very arrogant and cocky. Big Brother was here. I don't know, he was just trying to strut his stuff in front of Big Brother. And he, he was, you could just tell he was bad news. He was bad news from the start. Now, do you remember that yourself, or do you remember people that because yeah specific yeah i i remember one instance uh, i vividly remember the um it's right over there the ash um it's the ashley clinic now used to be the cafe dean told me about the church classes they used to have on wednesday evenings right across the street from where his welding shop now stands uh whatever christian classes or whatever Mm -hmm. it was always wednesday nights and i remember on wednesday nights he would come to town and, you know, we'd be in for our pop and candy bar or whatever. And then we'd just mingle out in Main Street and he would be out there just, you know, he knew everything and did this and how he partied and he could have any woman he wants. Can I do this? Can I do that? Super, you know, just very, very, very arrogant. And, you know, just Mr. Joe Cool, you know, he was, he was bad news, <laughs> real bad news. In part one of this podcast, we heard from John Reedy. He was about 16 years old that summer. He was there at Zion Lutheran Church the morning the Zicks didn't show up. He was probably a little tired, too, because he had been to a party the night before outside of town. When he returned to Zealand, he drove his usual shortcut home, which took him right along the side and the back of the bank. He thinks at about the time the crime was taking place. Well, we, I don't know, we were out partying and I was just coming home from a party. So that could have been right around 3 o'clock, 3.30. John pointed out his route on a map. My, my, our house is on the east side of, of Zealand and that's facing north. So there's a road right here, right by the bank where a guy comes home and then I, you take that. Instead of coming up here and going this way, you just... So you passed the bank. I passed right right by the bank. John also remembers David, Sebastian, and Greg. No, all of a sudden, you know, it was, you know, Butch came and he was in school. And you know, I got along with him. I got along with Gregory. But I don't know how it all, how they all of a sudden ended up in Zealand. And I remember, like, 4th of July, Dave, you know, by the machine shed. I mean, he would, he would he'd roll a joint and smoke it, you know, on 4th of July, you know, there's a lot of people around. And he, he just didn't care, you know. So I never got to know him. It was kind of, you know, he was, he was a different cat. Dave Silbernackle went to Zealand High School and was in the same class as Gregory Huber. That's Greg Huber, who grew up in Zealand, spent his whole life there, went to Zealand school, attended Zion Lutheran Church with the Zicks, and then somehow suddenly ends up involved in this crime. He was this quiet kid that hardly ever talked. and You know, he was just a little guy. I mean, that's one thing. I don't ever remember him in trouble at all. I don't. He wasn't a troublemaker. He really wasn't. He was a quiet person. But Gregory never dated anybody around here at all. Didn't go to any, you know, the, the school dances and stuff. He was that shy. He just 
he kind of was a, almost a loner. Greg started changing when the two Feist brothers, well, first the younger one came. The younger one, Sebastian, came first. And he, he and Greg became friends. Um, I met Sebastian and talked to him a number of times. And then his older brother, David, came. That's when the trouble started. I asked Dave if he might elaborate a little bit. Um, we used to hang out at the uh, Ponderosa Bar in Harriet. It was because you only had to be 18 in South Dakota. And so we'd go down there after there were no ball games or whatever, you know. And weren't supposed to, but we did. But David was nothing but, he was bad news. We could all tell. He had an attitude. He was a, my girlfriend at the time was from Strasburg, and we were together down there, and he came and sat with us in the booth. Uh, and he was just, he just, she was afraid of him, just the way he acted. And I finally told him, get lost. He would sit across from you, and, and he would look at her, and he'd stick his tongue out, and, you know, and acting like, an, like he was, a, you know, part animal. He was weird. And uh, anyway, you know, and you know, everybody smoked their weed here and there, um, but most of us behaved. Um, but Greg started hanging around with them guys all the time, and uh, but David's the one that got the ball rolling with them. I asked him if David Feist ever came across as violent. No, not really. I mean, he was just he was a different guy. I mean. Got to realize here we're small town USA, little tiny town. These guys come from LA or whatever. You know, you you don't realize that they are different because just because of their upbringing. But the thing is, Sebastian, his younger brother, wasn't like that. He was a normal person. David, you knew something was up. I mean, just something was not right. I don't know if. David was on, you know, if he was doing drugs other than marijuana, he sure acted like he was on acid or something. Dave Silbernackle feels that David Feist influenced Greg Huber. If, if I had to give it a, you know, after all these years in understanding people, I would say that that was the number one influence of why he did what he did. And I'm thinking he got trapped into the bull crap. And I think the younger brother did too. I was offered this theory over and over again. I was told that Greg in particular, but also in a way Butch Feist, were a couple of nice, quiet kids who got mixed up with the wrong person. They got dragged into it, wrong place at the wrong time. However, none of the people who told me these stories have seen or heard the police reports, at least not until now. The interviews that Agent Sickler and others did with Gregory's brother seem fairly clear. That is, if we can trust the words of Greg's brother, Samuel. Greg actively sought out and helped plan this crime, at the very least, a robbery. Greg called Sebastian Feist on Friday, July 9th, and told him to wake up David Feist, at which point he asked David, Are we going to do it tonight? It was Gregory Huber who took a shotgun and shotgun shells from his parents' house, the gun that killed the Zicks. And as for Butch Feist, what was it that he said on that Friday night when the other two didn't seem up for it? 
According to Huber's brother, he said, I'll have to do it myself. I'll drive up and down Zealand and rob every place in town. Does this sound like the words of innocent kids being dragged along by an older brother? If anything, it sounds like they were the ones doing the pushing. When considering what ingredients are needed to cook up a crime like this, it's not enough to just come up with an instigator. A crime such as this needs more than just one finger on one shotgun trigger. You need co-conspirators who, despite having the chance and the ability to say, wait, stop this nonsense, they never do. In fact, as we shall see, Greg Huber had an opportunity to put an end to it, or at the very least to rescue Ellen Zick from this nightmare. It was an opportunity he passed on. There is an expression today that did not quite exist in 1976. Sometime after 9-11, the phrase, if you see something, say something, evolved. If you think something bad's going to go down, speak up. If this modern-day approach had been applied there in Zealand, maybe Wade and Ellen would have been able to live full, rich lives, enjoying time with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is BCI agent Sickler again. Those type of uh, murders were not quite that common, or young people would have gone out uh, as committed something, you know, like today when you have a school shooting. And whatnot. In those days, kids would joke about what they're going to do, but nobody took them serious, and majority of the time, nothing ever happened. One person who had prior knowledge of the plan was a 15-year-old kid in Zealand. Twelve days after the Zicks were killed, BCI agent Norb Sickler returned to Zealand to interview this boy, who said he wanted to make a statement. Agent Sickler wrote up a report on it. I'm going to change the boy's name to John Doe. In fact, there are two John Does in this report. At this time, John Doe stated that at approximately three to four weeks before the Zicks had been murdered, that he had been riding with John Doe number 2, a cousin of his, in John Doe number 2's car, and with them were David Feist and Gregory Huber. He stated that Gregory and David were sitting in the back seat and were discussing the kidnapping of Mr. and Mrs. Zick and the robbery of the bank. At this time, they had asked John Doe to identify the house where Mr. and Mrs. Zick lived because they were uncertain of the location. John Doe stated that they passed the front of the Zick residence whereby he pointed out the house to them. John Doe also stated that the conversation he had heard between David and Gregory included the fact that David had stated that they would take Mr. and Mrs. Zick from their house, and after having them open the bank and gotten the money, they would take them and shoot them. He stated that Greg had made the statement that he didn't know if he could do anything like that, whereby David told him that this would not be a problem because he, David, would shoot the Zicks. During that discussion between David and Greg, John Doe stated that he had heard David state that after they had shot the Zicks that they would put them into Alex's dump. John Doe stated that he had heard David and Greg discuss the case of the robbery and killing on several occasions, but that in his own mind he could not believe that they were actually going to do it and that it was just a wild idea that they had. If you see something, say something. If someone says they're going to kill someone, or even just rob someone, say something. If someone asks you to drive by and point out a house so they know where to go to rob someone, say something. Another person who saw something but did not say something was David Feist's girlfriend, Julianne. 
Sheriff Wiest and BCI agent Milton Lennick drove down to Selby, South Dakota, to talk to her one day. Wiest and Lennick documented the following in their reports. Julianne told us that she got to know David Feist in February of 1976, when he came from California to the Zealand and Selby area. David was living at the Auburn Hotel in Selby and was employed by the co-op station for some months during the spring, driving a fertilizer truck. She stated that she got to know him in February and started dating him in April. She said that they generally went to parties, booze parties, and drug parties at various times. This is how they generally spent their evenings as entertainment. She did state that they used pot quite often. Their main hangouts, as far as parties were concerned, was Lake Hiddenwood, five miles northeast of Selby. She stated that everybody in the area who associated with Dave was aware of the fact that they were going to rob a bank, but not go to the extent that they had gone. She said Greg and Samuel Huber and Dave were talking about this quite freely at the time when Butch was out in Seattle, Washington. She didn't pay too much attention to it. She didn't feel that they would go through with it. She did say, however, that on Friday night, July 9th, David Feist, along with his brother, Butch Feist, Samuel Huber, and Gregory Huber, came to Selby to see her. She said that they had talked about this incident that evening, jokingly, back and forth. On that particular night, David decided to stay with her, so he spent that night and the following day with her in Selby until that Saturday evening. It was obvious to us that she was not revealing quite as much as she may have possibly known about the incident, but she kept saying repeatedly that she just didn't take them seriously. She didn't think that they would actually go through with something like that. She still, quote, didn't believe that they would do something so foolish, unquote. She stated that on Saturday evening, the rest of the boys came back from Zealand and rejoined them. She said again that night there was some talk of robbing a bank and going to their grandmother's to pick up some guns. From Selby, they ended up going to Mowbridge to spend some time there. They left Mowbridge at about 1 a.m. Sunday morning, went back to Glenham and spent some time there and got back to Selby at approximately 2 to 2.30 a.m. This is when she parted company with the Feists and Hubers. Most of us can relate on some level to the fact that nobody seemed to take this seriously. We might think something like, if I had to call the police every time I heard a teenage boy say something kind of stupid, I'd be on the phone all day. That's one way of looking at it, and as I said, we can probably all relate to it at some level. But isn't there another level we should try to relate to, a more important one? What about Nancy Wald, Wade and Ellen's daughter? Put yourself in her shoes. What about Jerry Mammel, Ellen's son? Imagine being Nancy or Jerry and learning that over many weeks prior to your parents' murder, the men who carried it out had broadcasted their plans of a bank robbery loud and clear. Nancy Wald and Jerry Mammel, if they were still alive today, would likely be one of the biggest advocates of our modern-day phrase, if you see something, say something. For God's sake, say something. Chapter 22. It's About Time.
When federal marshals returned the young men to North Dakota, they were brought to the county jail in Bismarck. I spent several weeks writing emails and letters to various television stations and historical archives. And finally, I did locate some video footage of the suspects. Or rather, I found some uncut footage without sound that shows first Butch Feist and then later David Feist being brought into the county jail in Bismarck. It is a bit of a blast from the past. The parking lot is full of those big, boxy American cars, and both law enforcement and the suspects don that 70s clothing and hairstyles. Some might say that all that's missing is a soundtrack right out of some Tarantino movie. I sat down with a few different people and let them watch this video. If you want to watch it yourself, I'll explain later how to do that. I'm going to show you one more video. There's no sound on this one, but is that full screen? Yeah, is it is this in Bismarck now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's John Reedy again. Man, there's old old cars in '76. Yeah. Cool. First, a car drives into the parking lot outside of the jail. A federal marshal is driving. Butch Feist sits in the passenger seat. Yeah. Then the marshal parks the car and gets out. Butch opens his own door and starts getting out on his own almost before the marshal has come around to his side of the car. That's Butch. Striped 70s. Yep. Butch stands up, and we see that he's in handcuffs. That's Butch. Hmm. I also let Whitey Klein watch this video. Whitey, who, along with his friend Spike, found the bodies of Wade and Ellen in the grapple pit. Can you see okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. It's a Bismarck, huh? Whitey studies the screen silently, watching closely. When Butch gets out of the car, Whitey breaks his silence. Oh yeah, there's the asshole. No, it doesn't seem like it bothered him too much. The marshal escorts Butch to what looks to be the back door of the jail, and inside they go. Later in this film, this car returns again, this time with David Feist. But David is not sitting by himself in the front seat next to the driver. He's in the back between two officers. The car is parked and all four men get out. That's Dave. As they lead David Feist into the jail, he smiles brightly into the camera. He says something into the camera, too, smiling. After watching it many times, I believe it might be either it's about time or maybe having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, see, there, that, that cat wasn't wired. The marshal leads David Feist up the steps and into the jail. And Whitey Klein again. Yeah, he thought it was funny, huh? Gosh, didn't seem to bother him any. Oh, what a waste. To find out how to watch this video yourself, go to dakotaspotlight.com. Maybe you are better at reading lips than I am, and you can figure it out. Still to come on Dakota Spotlight Season 2. Then, as of today, it, it's, a, it's a very sensitive subject for me. Me and my brother and the bank manager went around front. A little while later, she, she said, I've seen the two vice boys come out of the house. <laughs> the old lady came downstairs to get a drink of water, and Greg knocked on the door and told her they ran out of gas and they wanted to use the phone. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to answer that other than um, I have to be honest with you. Absolutely honest.
Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern LLC in the state of North Dakota. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wade Zick's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around I'm sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on from that city Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.